So I got the uh, call from James that he's going off to do his own self-retreat. And uh, I suspect that he's actually watching a Warriors game tonight. (laughs) But uh, I was happy to come and substitute for him. Um, This time of year... It's really good to keep your practice going, to do meditation once or twice a day, just to keep the synapses somewhat orderly and clean and not get too lost in the the chaos of consumption that goes on this time of year. Anyway, I have uh, put together uh, a number of pieces that I'd like to share with you tonight, and then I want to definitely leave time for your questions, some discussion. Uh, It's it's good to to see what what you need, what you want, see if I can offer some solutions. But I want to start with a poem that I wrote. It's actually kind of doggerel. You know what doggerel is? But I like it. And it fits this time of year. The dark, the dark, it's not really so stark, the dark. Just a time without light, a bark without bite. A time to rest from the glare of the sun. Time to get something done or undone. Inside your mother you could not see. The womb of the world is a black hole in space. The dark is the place of fertility. In the dark, you can see your original face. Without dark, we would not even know there was light. We would never see day without seeing the night. And there's nothing to fear, really nothing to fear. This darkness keeps turning our way every year. And the season of darkness is here once again. And sometimes it feels like it never will end. But the sun is reborn every year at this time, and out of the storm will be born the sublime, and maybe even a new paradigm that will light up the world and continue to shine. So just keep the faith. Have little doubt that soon the sun will decide to come out and shine much longer and stronger each day. And friends, when the winter has truly begun, you know that you soon will arise like the sun. The dark. The poets would, you know, ah, children's rhymes. So, happy Hanukkah to those of you who uh, celebrate or identify with the Jewish religion. Uh, this is a, a very potent time, you know, the the darkest days of the year because it's said that the dark uh, is just a thin veil between the heavens and and the earth and that we can really learn a lot about ourselves and the world. So almost all cultures have some kind of celebration at this time of year. The Druid Festival, uh, there's a... Kachina night dances in the Hopi Puebla. Um, the 
of course, the holiday of Christmas and Hanukkah and, and all these holidays involve a lot of lighting lights and binging. I mean, I think they're really basically an excuse for winter binging, all of them. And uh, so here we are. And, of course, we have New Year's coming up in a couple weeks. The year is 2018. Uh, That's, of course, if you follow the Christian calendar. Some of us are... Jews and Buddhists and Hindus, and I don't think we should all have to follow that calendar, actually. You know, uh, the Jews are in the year 5778. We were here first. Uh, But it's so arbitrary when the year starts. Why why don't we just, I, I could say, Happy New Year. And then Next year at this moment, it would be Happy New Year again because it's measuring the time it takes for the earth to circle around the sun. And we did it once again. And where did it get us? (laughs) Right back where we started. You know, the sun has its own uh, galactic orbit. It actually... Uh, orbits through the Milky Way galaxy every, I think, every 200,000 years. Yeah, every 200 million years it goes through the galaxy. And so if we go from the Big Bang as the birth of it all, uh, the sun is 25 galactic years old. And it's destined to explode in about another a uh, few billion years. Um, so it's kind of going through its midlife right now, the sun. Some other planets, you know, have different uh, times of going around their sun. We're finding uh, other planets in the Milky Way galaxy, like one called Gliese 581g. And... Um, that goes around its sun every 37 days. So if you were a Gleaser, if you lived on that planet, you'd be a lot older than you are today. The years just go whizzing by, you know. By the way, Gliese 581g is just a few dozen light years from the Earth. So we can imagine the Gleasers just about ready to watch I Love Lucy. Not in reruns. Isn't it a fantastic universe that we live in? Isn't it amazing? Doesn't it blow your mind? And what is this thing, this mysterious dimension we live in, this dimension of time? A simple explanation is that time is what keeps everything from happening at once. In the Dharma, we often hear, uh, be here now. I can be here now, but it's impossible to keep up. (laughs) I like that line. 
where is this moment now? Where did it go? It just, they just keep peeling off. And uh, I recently was honored to have a conversation with Ram Dass. I asked him if he had some advice for people. He said, make friends with change. That's because everything changes. And especially as you age, things change. Uh, usually for the worse. <laughs> At least, and, and that seems to be appropriate, you know, that every generation mourns the uh, passage of time and the change of history and the change of culture. And, you know, I don't know names of, I don't know these, these rock and roll groups anymore. I can't, I, I don't know any, any of their music. And uh, I just assume it isn't anywhere near as good as my music was. In fact, what I've heard of it, <laughs> forget it. But Anicca is really, Anicca being impermanence is really a key teaching of the Buddha. And whenever the three characteristics of existence are talked about or mentioned, it starts with, Anicca, impermanence, followed by dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and then followed by not-self, which is the characteristic which says that there, there's no lasting, coherent, individual self here. Everything compounded will eventually come apart, is really the law of Anicca. And it says... We can never find solid ground. We can never be satisfied in this form and in this life we're in unless we practice and follow the, follow the path and become free of our identification with this single solitary being. It doesn't mean to say that we don't exist. It just means to say that we are much more than just this, this story we tell ourselves. Did you enjoy that? I, I really have been playing around with my, the voices in my head lately. It's really useful. You know, you don't have to be serious about your meditation. You can have a good time. Give those voices names. Uh, I, really, I really like the idea of thinking that they're speaking in a different language. It completely nullifies them. I don't. I don't have to. I don't have to get caught by them when I when I hear them that way. It's easy to just let them flow through, and because that really is part of our practice. We're not trying to maintain a constant state of empty mind, but it is when the mind is relatively empty that we really see the truth of uh, our situation, of our incarnation. I remember first sitting with my teacher Goenka in, in Bodh Gaya, India in 1970. And uh, he often, after we started meditating, he would sit up in front and just chant. As we, as we were sweeping the body, he taught this body scan meditation where you sweep the mind through the body, feeling 
the various sensations of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And just, you keep sweeping the body, giving, giving the mind a little bit more to do than just watching the breath or receiving the breath. You were, the mind was more active. I, it's a powerful practice. Uh, but we would be doing that and he would be up in front and he would, he had this deep voice and he would just, Anicca, Anicca. And after doing that practice for several weeks and then eventually months, uh, in a row, the body like dissolved. That you could really, really feel the fact that it's not a thing; it's a process. It's like a a, a continually changing uh, process of this organism. That it's not, and it's not mine or yours or anybody's. It's arisen. This is a great statement of the Buddha's. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. And it's so, we're finding it's so true through uh, the science of evolution. Uh, understanding, understanding evolution, we realize that uh, we, don't, we don't choose this body. It's it's what what's happening. <laughs> it's nature's body. It's a loner, you know. I mean, causes and conditions. If you had a picture, says R- Richard Dawkins, if you had a picture of your great grandfather, a hundred million great-grandfathers ago, which everyone has a grandfather that far back, of course, or you wouldn't be here. If you had a picture of your great-grandfather a hundred million great-grandfathers ago, you would have a picture of a fish. These are some of our ancestors. Scaly. Could breathe underwater. And it seems that we are all related to those that first being, that single-celled being. See, I think we should develop some ancestor worship. I think we should develop the whole field of, of uh, evolution as a kind of modern mythology that we, are, we understand ourselves in that story. For so long, we have left ourselves out of that story. And that's why we, maybe why we see nature as so separate from us and we feel like we can do anything we want. Uh, uh, but to see ourselves in that story is very liberating. I think the Buddha would, would really love it. He tried, to, he tried to loosen our attachment to our individual story. And now I think we can add to that, loosen your attachment to our species story. Because for a long time we've thought, you know, we were specially created and uh, the earth is kind of like a training planet, a place where you come and we come and learn some lessons and burn off some karma and then we get to go off to some other place where we truly belong. That's increasingly dysfunctional. It takes our reverence away from this world. 
that's my my soapbox uh, issue is using evolution as a way of liberating ourselves be here now I can be here now but I, I can't keep up <laughs> you'll get that joke pretty soon uh Scientific studies at Harvard involving beepers and diaries suggest that an average daydream is about 14 seconds long and that we have about 2,000 of them a day. In other words, we spend about half of our waking hours, one-third of our lives on Earth, lost in the future or past. According to the research, people's minds wandered frequently regardless of what they were doing during every activity except making love. The research also found that people were less happy when their minds were wandering than when they were not, and this was true during all activities. In conclusion, a human mind is a wandering mind, and a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. As Nosho Kempo Rinpoche says, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, Rest this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thoughts. It's really interesting, isn't it? Spent the first half of my life learning how to think. And I'm spending the next, the last half of my life learning how not to think. What was I thinking? <laughs> A few more numbers here. Every cell in your body goes through 4,000 transactions a second. Processing fuels, exchanging chemical and electrical signals with other cells, monitoring the environment, creating proteins, enzymes. Consider that you have approximately 50 trillion cells in your body. That means there are a few quadrillion events taking place inside of you every split second. Stay mindful. And here's the Buddha. A person contemplates as impermanent and not as permanent the pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feelings. The feelings born of visual impressions, sound impressions, smell impressions, the corporeal phenomena, water, heat, air, skin, flesh, blood, sinews, bone, marrow, visual consciousness, auditory consciousness, contemplating them all as impermanent. The meditator abandons the notion of permanency and by relinquishing, the meditator abandons craving. To see that everything is disappearing as it appears. One of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, uh, says, you Westerners, you have a real problem. You think everything is so real.
There's a book I read I really loved. A guy named Colin, Colin Tudge. Sort of a spiritual geologist. He wrote two wonderful books. One is called The Day Before Yesterday. The other one is called The Time Before History. I want to read you this. What he wrote. We count the rhythms of our own lives through the passing of days and seasons. As members of families, we note the passing generations. Historians traditionally deal in centuries. But for the most part, we remain blissfully unaware of the deep rhythms that lie beneath. Rhythms that must be measured in millennia, or in millions of years, or in tens of millions of years. In school, we learn of ice ages in one set of books, and history in another, and fail to see how the two are connected. We fail to perceive, therefore, that beneath the surface tremors of our lives, there are much deeper and more powerful forces at work that in the end affect us and all of our creatures, fellow creatures much more profoundly than the events of daily, day to day. Well, we're sure seeing a lot of sort of cataclysmic uh, explosions coming from nature these days and discovering that the permafrost is free, is, is melting. It's not supposed to... I mean, we call it permafrost because we thought it was permanent, but it doesn't seem to be. And we seem to be watching these, these upheavals of nature with us as kind of the driving force for most of our history as humans, we have been busy protecting ourselves from nature, and now we have to t- start protecting nature from us. And that's going to re- require a great shift of consciousness. That's why I think meditation is so important, and I think that's why there's a, a need for it and a hunger for it that, you know, uh, that's evidenced by all the meditation centers springing up all over the country. We really uh, are tired of this individualism and being lost in that story. And we need to reconnect with our, as members of the human species, it's a glorious identity. You know, we should be honored to be part of this wondrous, wondrous being, wondrous species. By the way, I, I've been talking about be here now. You know that uh, the f- physicists have declared that there's no separation between time and space. It's now joined with a conjunction, space-time. That's what's happening. Uh, and so if you say to somebody, be here now, you're being redundant. Just thought you ought to know that. Gary Snyder was camping with his friend Lou Welch. And uh, 
he looked up and he saw the great redwoods. And he said, you know, Lou, you think uh, those redwoods think we humans are just kind of passing through? And Lou Welch said, yeah. And the rocks kind of think these redwoods are just passing through. So are you having fun yet? Okay, good. I'll, go, I'll continue. Uh, I think there's a, a, a core error that we're making as we import the wisdom traditions uh, of Asia into the West. And that is that we have the tendency so much to judge ourselves and uh, compare ourselves. I think there's a, there's a less of a uh, less of that tendency elsewhere. But we're living we're living at a time and doing this practice at a time that is completely completely new on our planet. And I think we don't realize how much uh, our difficulties in focusing and our difficulties in being at ease with ourselves and and understanding the Dharma comes from uh, the fact that we're living in this particular culture. Uh, I made a list here that I think is really useful. And I think the reason that I'm uh, pushing this is so because... We're so hard on ourselves and think that we're somehow failing because we can't meditate right. But um, so anyway, this is in service of, of letting go of any accusations we have for ourselves. Like fish, we don't see the world we are living in, the ocean that uh, you know they swim in. We don't see the world we do practice in. We go back just about a century or a little bit more. We find that Henry Ford built the first car in 1893. That was there, now there's 800 million cars. The Wright brothers made the first flight in 1903. 1900, the first transmission of human speech via radio waves. 1900 also. Max Planck first formulated quantum theory, which led to the creation of the atom bomb and complete transformation of our understanding of reality. In 1900, Freud published the interpretation of dreams. In 1900, only one and a half billion people lived on Earth. One hundred years ago, no cars, no airplanes, no radios, no television, or computers, no painkillers, no antibiotics, no birth control, no Ziploc bags, no plastic. hundred years ago, nobody believed in rock and roll. And we're still, we're living in this society, in this world, with brains designed over many thousands of years were members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. 
So maybe that's part of the reason that we find it so hard to slow down, not be acquisitive, not be quite so aggressive, do a little bit less. In 10,000 BC, when we began developing agriculture, humans numbered less than 10 million. Today, 10 million of us are born every month. Let's see if let's see if you have any uh, questions and discussion material if you'd like, and we can talk. Yeah. I think I didn't understand um, what you said a a couple minutes ago. You said that the human, um, I'm not sure that I have this right, but that the human mind kind of developed because for the better part of human history, we've been in a hunting and gathering mode. So our brain was now is operating at a jillion times faster. But we're still hunting and gathering (laughs) So it, I'm, I guess to me it seems paradoxical that we would be, it would be, I would think it would be harder for our brain to be going fast and that naturally our brain should be going slower. But I think I heard you say the other way around, that it's, that explains somehow why it's hard for us to go slow. Uh, Did I, I it's, Yeah, it's, it, may, it was confusing. And I don't know how to unconfuse you, actually. Uh, if, we're, if our brain was designed and over, over thousands of years been trained to, uh, to be a hunter-gatherer, basically, a member of a small tribe of people, and suddenly is in the modern world, uh, it's room for, there's room for a lot of confusion and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to overcome some of the instinct, instinctual uh, patterns, trying to free ourselves from, from a kind of tribalism that's really uh, hurting us, Collect- collectively hurting us. Does that make any sense? I- well, it, it does, but um, on the one hand, it seems to me that part of what we're missing is a sense of community and of our sense of being part of something. So this hyper individualism is seems to be quite the opposite yes, of being it is. part of a tribe, um, of being part of a clan, of being part of a lineage. Um, that we've cut ourselves off from that. So, it, um, and at the same time, sort of politically, today's problems here in the West have been that we are too tribal. So it's our tribe versus their tribe, or the you know, left versus right, et cetera. So there's sort of at a political, social level, the tribalism is not is very dysfunctional, helpful. right. But at the sort of psycho-emotional level, it seems that what we're missing is that those strong ties that what we used to have when we had family or extended family or extended clan or tribe. 
So it's quite, it's easy to see why it's all confusing and hard. (laughs) I'll agree with that. The hunter gather, being a being a hunter gatherer, you know, having hunter gatherer brains uh, will ex- would explain our addiction to shopping, right? If it's out there, you just go get it. It's you know that's simple rule that you're built you're it's built into your biology. You know, if we do, if we truly believe in the story of evolution, this is exactly what's supposed to be happening. There's no, there's very little room for, you know, well, it's our fault or it's it's evolution's fault. That's why it's so confusing. <laughs> Blame evolution. Is just a second. Yes, indeed. In that, and, and so this kind of aberration of these last hundred years, it, that's what it seems like, is an aberration, not sort of part of the continuum, but something really like a glitch in, uh-huh. in that evolutionary process. Yeah. Well, it seems also incredibly creative and uh, I mean, our, the brilliance of our species has to be acknowledged. I mean, we can fly off the planet. We can fly into outer space. You know, uh, we can feed pretty much 8 billion people. I mean, it's, we're really, really smart, clever, pe- clever species. It's just that, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of gone overboard. We're, too extreme. Our, our doing, our construction and consuming, it's just, you know, it, we have to slow it down. We have to slow it down and not consume so much and not construct so much and develop so much. And then I'll be much happier living in Berkeley if that happens. Claire. Thanks, Wes. Uh, great talk. Um, this conversation reminds me of a, the Okanagan creation understanding, which loosely explained, and I probably have it somewhat wrong, by uh, my friend Jeanette Armstrong, who's the wisdom keeper of the Penticton Band of Okanagans, is that first there was nothingness, and nothingness got lonely, so it created the stars and the planets. And the stars and the planets got lonely, so they created the earth. And the earth got lonely, so it created water. And water got lonely, so it created the things that swim. And the things that swim got lonely, and they created the things that crawl. The things that crawl got lonely, and they created the mammals and the things that fly. And the mammals, like the bears and the lions and the coyotes, they got lonely and bored, so they created us to amuse themselves. Uh. And so then the question is, what do we create for the next step? So when I think about myself as being sort of uh, the creation of a bear that was bored, I can handle it better. A bear that was bored. <laughs> uh, uh, Gary Snyder says, we're a gang of sexy primate clowns. 
Um, well, you know, the, it gets complicated when you think about how the brain is developed, you know, through all those eons and eons of time. And the triune brain, you know, it started out being pretty, uh, just like, uh, you know... Uh, a theory. Huh? A theory. A theory? It, oh, the triune brain. Yeah. The triune brain, so, so it's a layered kind of thing. And so then it got better and better and got smarter because... The last one to add on was the prefrontal cortex, which does all this incredible reasoning and figuring out things and everything. So we kind of, kind of, you wonder whether it was worth it or not. <laughs> well, the story that I've heard was that, okay, we have the primal uh, reptilian brain, the brain stem, and then we have the limbic system, the, the mammalian brain, and then we have the new cerebral cortex or uh, human brain and the research also shows that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains <laughs> yeah <laughs> I would agree with that <laughs> that we're not we're not uh, yeah we're, we're constantly making excuses for our brutal, un, unchecked uh, aggression. Yeah, that's right. Some people are not uh, worried about it. It's it's an amazing time that we're we're living through. I think it's uh, maybe everybody thinks they're living through an amazing time, but it seems like we're headed towards some very apocalyptic, difficult uh, events and times. And uh, I think the Buddha Dharma is really important to keep us cool, settled. I have another, another solution. Uh, I've been reading a little bit of history lately just to try to understand what's going on. And of course, if you look at history, you see empires and superpowers like ours just rising and crumbling and arising and crumbling over and over again. Uh, Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, the uh, Greeks and the Romans, then European uh, empires and just a few just a few decades ago the Brits were proud to say the sun never sets on the British Empire now it's just those ch chilly little islands in the North Atlantic the sun never even rises on the British Empire uh, so you know we kind of took over the old European colonies with television and promises of of wealth and leisure and uh, I ran across this uh, Edward Gibbon quote he, he wrote uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire the cause of Rome's decline lied in her in her bloated and overextended military her widespread economic and political corruption her public apathy and hedonism her dependence on and 
addiction to foreign resources. Does it sound familiar? (laughs) Apparently it happens the same way every time. So, yeah, well, yeah, we should be we should be a little softer with it. I have this idea that, okay, so we see the writing on the wall. Maybe we could do this whole decline and fall thing with a, a little bit of gray, more grace and consciousness. So I I suggest that this will never happen now, but that the U.S. go to the U.N. and announce to the world that we'd like to resign as a superpower and just become an ordinary, happy-go-lucky nation. It would be great for all of us. We, we wouldn't have to work so hard keeping a superpower economy going. Uh, we could relax a little. Uh, and there's it's not nothing to fear. I mean, uh, Rome didn't decline in a day either. And while it was declining, a lot of Roman citizens probably didn't even notice it was happening. A few centuries later, they started calling themselves Italians. They're doing fine today. Besides, this would be the world's first intentional decline and fall. So the government would set up some public works projects like the Roosevelt-era New Deal. Only I envision a New Age New Deal. I envision a five-year plan called the Great Leap Backward. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, no, I'm going. I'm going further with it. Uh, as soon as I remember what, what uh, the great leap backward. I think it's just gone. But uh, the government, yeah. The government would set up, a, yes, I know what I wanted to say. We don't need a stimulus package. We need a sedative package. <laughs> so the government would set up an, uh, a department of meditation and therapy. And they would build uh, uh, centers all over the country and teach hyperactive American workers how to become less productive members of a less productive society. And the whole country could work with the mantra, enough, enough, we've got enough stuff, enough. And uh, the government could uh, put construction workers back to work on disassembly lines. <laughs> Taking apart the cars, separating the steel out into ores, and shoveling it back into the ground again. We could get rid of the bane of our existence, which is the private automobile. It is the bane of our existence. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, the, the government would uh, invite some less developed nations to start at reverse Peace Corps, send us volunteers to teach us how to live more simply. Uh, oh, and, and the government would de- 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 uh, create a Department of Wisdom Enough with the intelligence agencies. Uh, the Department of Wisdom would be run by mystics and clowns and philosophers and archaeologists and that kind of people and, and maybe restore a balance of power to the global brain, the governmental brain. Finally, uh, 
what, in order to keep our currency afloat as we transition from superpower, America great again, superpower to just ordinary nation, we want to keep our currency afloat. So what do we do better than anybody else on the planet? Entertain. Everybody on the planet loves American entertainment. So as we resign as a superpower, we simultaneously open up the whole continent as a vast theme park. The people could come and witness this first intentional decline and fall. Uh, we'll call the theme park Formerly Great America. How about that? <laughs> the downhill rides would be spectacular. It just... You, we got to laugh. We got to laugh. Any questions about practice? <laughs> Buddha Dharma. Uh, I'll go one, two. Um, when you were uh, during the meditation, um, when you uh, said uh, to just let let our thoughts happen, you told us to let our thoughts happen and not to engage with our thoughts. So th- that was pretty interesting to me because um, I tried to uh, see if I could notice a thought before I had engaged with it, and that. Uh, I I wasn't able to do that. Um, So any thoughts on how to notice thoughts before you've engaged with them? Practice. I mean, a short answer, but yeah, practice. and, And when you sit down to meditate, vow to yourself or make the strong intention that you're not going to think about any of your thoughts. Just for that period of time. It doesn't mean you're going to, you know, become an empty-headed fool. I mean, that it's... But to still the mind to the point where you can really begin to see impermanence, etc., is really pretty important. So, make the intention you're not going to think about any of your thoughts and then just, just see them as, poof, they're nothing, really. They're just old synaptical connections usually. Uh, there was a Stanford study, I think it was. We have something like 600 thoughts a day and 90% of them we had the same thoughts we had yesterday. And, you know, uh, to just start to train your mind to let go, uh, to, to not think about them. And pretty soon you might just not be able to notice them and let them float through. The voices? Yeah, well, that's a, the question is, am I the voice, am I the voice that's speaking? Or am I the, the am I listening? Am I the listener? Uh, can I be both the listener and the speaker at the same time? And why, that's, doesn't that seem like unnecessary effort? I mean, if you if you know what you're going to say, <laughs> you don't need to listen to yourself. <laughs> uh, it's just uh, 
trying to be playful with the idea that you, if you just sit there with a still mind and don't react to a thought, a, a sensation, a, an urge, a desire, whatever it is that arises, if you don't engage with it, it has no effect on you. You really start to gain mastery over all those automatic reactions to things and, you know, the same old thought patterns. And uh, it's, you start to free yourself from the past, actually. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's not easy. I mean, you know, uh, as we as we mentioned, a hundred, couple hundred thousand years of of uh, really believing in our thoughts. We've only been messing around with this stuff for a couple thousand years, you know. Lao Tzu uh, in China, the Buddha in India. Socrates in Greece, all 2,500 years ago, the axial, axial age, when it seems like the whole species kind of woke up to another way of understanding the workings of their minds. Pretty exciting. Somebody else had a question. Um, actually, in response to your question, I was... Something that helps me with my thoughts is um, I just think of my thoughts like water in a river. And that imagery somehow, it just it's easy to, to watch a river or be part, part of a river and just let, mm-hmm. you know, you can't hold on to any one thing. It just goes mm-hmm. by and goes by mm-hmm. and goes by. So I don't know if that would help you, but that helps me. Thanks. And the, uh, I, I love the discussion tonight. It's great. Where did this, I mean, the seconds, the whole universe is continually moving on. I mean, I can, I can be here now, but I can't, I can't keep up. Um, I find myself at looking at a being here now and, and looking towards the future, I guess, kind of oscillating between uh, an optimism and a you know, pessimism or catastrophizing sort of thought. On the one hand, I think you know, we're so close. We just understand or we, we have the tools to be able to, you know, to educate and to practice loving kindness and to be mindful and to let go and mm-hmm. and uh, and to understand biodiversity and ecological balance and and uh, marital harmony and all these things and it seems like it should be so easy to do this in a sense <laughs> if it wasn't for all those those other folks who get it all so wrong <laughs> that you know, are an awful lot like me a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I'm awful lot like them a lot of times. And it's interesting to think about, you know, the evolutionary process and tripartite brain perhaps. And, and you know, if it's evolution's fault, you know, if I'm not my own fault, um, name of your last book, I think. Um, yeah, 
I'm, you're not your you're fault. You're not your fault, right. Um, and, you know, the, a question, is there such a th- thing as free will, or is it really all just kind of process uh-huh. and so on? And maybe it is all just an emergent property that still belongs to the laws of physics, and there is no free choice, like Robert Sapolsky says. Right. So then what, it, what's it all about? Well, then? and yet with it, that emergent property has something that looks a heck of a lot like free will and feels a heck of a lot like free will. And we can somehow participate in that as if it were free will, like Robert Sapolsky says Pretend. again. You know, I, don't know how in the, I don't believe in free will, but I don't know how in the world you'd live your life <laughs> as if it weren't true. <laughs> um, so I'm just curious your thoughts about, you know, with, with your, I mean, you've, you've spent a lot of time thinking and studying about you know, evolution and science and the mystery and, and so on. And, you know, where do we go from here? Where, where should we go? How can, how can we cultivate um, I'm glad the you possibility asked, so good? I'll tell you where to go. Uh, Isaac Besheva Singer was asked if he believes in free will. He said, I have no choice. Uh, yeah, I have my my son's girlfriend's dad is real into there is no free will, and we drove up to the eclipse a half a year ago, or a few months ago, and uh, his wife said, "Well, so I guess you guys are going to talk a lot about free will on the way up." <laughs> I said, "I don't think we have a choice, do we?" <laughs> right. Uh, I I think of it this way quite often. If I don't have, I didn't choose the instrument of choosing, then how could, I mean, I didn't choose to have this body and this mind and this, and this moment of, of choices being offered. And there's so much, there's so many causes and conditions that you might say that how can you, uh, that to imagine a, an individual free agent in the midst of that is really doesn't seem very coherent. It just seems like there are so many influences that go into creating this moment of your experience. So many factors, so so much of... No, you don't have free will. <laughs> we have to believe... I have to sell that, though, because otherwise, why would anybody meditate, right? Uh what, what about the the suttas that talk about mm, become, however it's worded, becoming in touch with the unconditioned? Uh, yeah, well, that's when, when you when you when you feel yourself or uh, you you've done enough work so that you are completely free from any reaction or any engagement with what happens. That there's you know that's that's the f- amount of freedom you can you can have. You can have that amount of freedom, but again, you know, where did you come from? Why 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 is there even the thought of you having a choice? The unconditioned. There wouldn't be any body here, would there? If there, there was. But I do have a I do have an answer to your question about optimism and pessimism. You know, the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is that the optimist says this is the best of all possible world, and the pessimist says I know. 
Unconditioned. It's I, I, I love talking about no self. You know, it's it's so interesting. Well, one one more. Does anybody have the capper question or the capper answer? I accept ans- uh, answers as well as questions. Well, in. Yeah, let's uh, let's share the merit. It's nice to be here with all of you. Interesting gang. So, should I read these? So we're sharing our efforts to awaken whatever we might have gained to open our hearts, whatever we've been able to generate with compassion. We hope to bring Lonnie peace as she faces the loss of her daughter and granddaughter. Hmm. For Renee Hayes, who recently lost her dear mother. For Renate Dietrich, who's looking for her place of refuge. And Mike Witchy, depression, paranoia. May we hold all the suffering beings in our hearts. Even if we don't have free will, it seems that we can generate the attitude of loving kindness forgiveness, compassion, realizing that everybody is just like us. Everybody wants the same things. We're all collectively trying to awaken each other. I enjoyed being with you a lot. Enjoy your holiday season. Yeah. Be well.